Hello, you are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio, on the web at cortezradio.ca. It is Friday, and we are here for Folk University Talk Radio. It's pretty exciting to be on the radio during these times. Every Friday, Cortez gets to host Folk University from 1 to 3 on the radio. And you can listen later to shows that you have missed at CortezRadio.ca or at CortezCurrents.ca. There's some great shows on there now from past weeks. And tomorrow, um, I've got other things going up there as well. Um, if, you're, if you are missing hearing about COVID-19, and I imagine very few of you are, but should you be missing hearing more about that? And um, then tomorrow, I've got a show on Cortez Currents about the, a Dutch perspective from a Dutch virologist who's worked all around the world on different viruses such as Ebola, SARS, and HIV. Talk about COVID. So today, I'm really excited to get to invite Michael Moore, naturalist, diver, and boat guide to present on Folk You Friday. We're going to learn a little bit more about the marine environment around Cortez and what's been happening. There will be opportunities for you to call in and ask questions as well. So probably around the top of the hour at two o'clock, you can call in to 250-935-0200 and ask some of your questions about the flora and fauna and the marine environment around Cortez or Heck, Mike's a knowledgeable guy. You might be able to ask all sorts of things. And we'll be closing up around 2.30 with some gardening advice. So stay tuned for that. And I am going to uh, welcome onto the other mic, six feet away. I can kind of see him over there. Hi, Mike. Welcome. Hi, Amanda. It's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. And, and uh, I'm pretty excited to be here. I was all lined up to do the Folk University at Linnea, but actually for spinning stories, the radio seems like a really appropriate way to go. Um, I've been on Cortez for about 30 years, but my marine background starts way back when I was a young lad sailing and diving. I was a commercial diver working out of Victoria. Uh, we used to fish for swimming scallops the giant Pacific octopus, swimming scallops, uh, sea urchins, and sea cucumbers. I worked on a halibut boat and a crab boat and a prawn boat when I was young. And then I spent 11 years in the Canadian Coast Guard, fortunate to work in the Arctic and on the West Coast here and on the East Coast where I did my training. So I've managed to go right around North America, except for about... 250 miles of the Northwest Passage because it was very ice-choked back then. It's not so hard now, I guess. And um, I also, since moving to Cortez Island, many of you know, I was owner with my uh, partner, Samantha, uh, in Misty Isles Adventures. And we did kayaking tours. We did sailing trips all over this area. And just uh, last year, actually... Very um, 
thankful for how it happened. We were able to find some beautiful Cortez Islanders to take over. That'd be Kai Harvey taking over the kayaking operation and Jonas and Amy Bachner taking over the Misty Isles portion. And uh, so I've spent most of my life on the sea or under it. I'm still active diving. I was in the water just yesterday and a couple days before that, and I suspect I'll be underwater again tomorrow. So uh, that's my intro. Can I, can, does that mean I can call you a mariner? You could call me a mariner. (laughs) Michael Moore the mariner. Yeah. And some people call me Michael Mooring. (laughs) I I like alliteration. So uh, yeah, so be careful. Um, so will you give us a little tour from this, from this Mar- from the Mariner's perspective? Tell us where we are in the world. Oh, sure. Well, like I say, I moved to Cortez Island and uh, grew to love this area in 1991. And it is a spectacular and special place. There's no other place on the BC coast which has quite such a dynamic range of environments. And what I thought I'd do is I thought I would start with the big picture and just talk about how Cortez Island actually got here. Okay, cast your minds back. 270 million years ago. This is one theory of how Cortez Island got here. 270 million years ago, all the continents were lumped up in something called Pangaea. But way off in what is now the South Pacific, about 10,000 kilometers to the southwest of here, where the Marquesas Islands are now, there was a super terrain being formed. And it was being formed much the way the Hawaiian Islands are being formed now, where you have a hot spot, and then as the islands move On the plate to the north and to the east, they cool down, they erode, and they get smaller. So this was the same sort of hot spot that was forming islands. We know this area now as Rangelia. And then it started to drift to the north and the east. As Pangaea was breaking up, so imagine... North America, South America, breaking apart from Europe and Africa, the Atlantic Ocean opening up. So the plates are moving, uh, the North American plate is moving to the west, and Rangelia is moving to the north and the east. And about 100 million years ago, it smashes up against the North American plate and smears itself all the way north to Alaska. So a lot of the rock that are found on Vancouver Island, Haida Gwaii, the Alaskan Islands, are all part of Rangelia. They're called Rangelian rock. And that's why on Vancouver Island, there's so many great fossils. Because Rangelia was was a tropical paradise. Back then, there were sea monsters plesiosaurs in the water there were there were um all kinds of corals and things growing underwater and i guess there would have been ferns and and trees on the land so as rangelia smashed into the north american plate one theory says 
that Vancouver Island, which is Rangelian Rock, smashed up against the coast and then bounced back. That created the Strait of Georgia, now known as the Salish Sea. Okay, so that's how that big body of water to the south of Cortez Island formed. Not only did it smear itself up the North American plate, but Rangelia, being lighter material, subducted. It dove under the North American plate. And as Rangelia dove under, because of pressure, because of friction, the Rangelian rock melted and it bubbled up underneath the overlying North American plate. So now, imagine a lava lamp. Those bubbles of multicolored oil coming up and unplug the lamp and uh, freeze the oil in there. And you can see these big bubbles just underneath the surface of the lava or of the of the lava lamp. And that's exactly what happened here. The big bubbles of magma of molten material or from from Rangelia lay underneath the overlying crust. And then through millions of years of erosion and glaciation, ending with the Pleistocene Ice Age about 15,000 years ago, that overlying material was eroded back and those big granitic bubbles are now exposed. So... When you look out towards Desolation Sound and you look at East Redonda Island, you look at all those islands that are very steep-sided, even the mountains that are extremely steep-sided, think of those bubbles of magma, of molten rock. And now all the overlying crust has been cleared away. The Pleistocene Ice Age carved those granitic structures into those fantastic shapes. Mount Denman, 6,600 feet high, a Matterhorn peak. It towers over Desolation Sound. It actually shows you where the high ice line was because Mount Denman jutted through the ice and was shaped and, and honed by the ice. It is a classic glacial horn, just like the Matterhorn. But when you look at lower structures like East Redonda Island, they're all rounded off. And that's because they were under the ice and had their peaks ground away. That ice carried the material and created glacial moraines. Sudal Point, south end of Cortez Island, Marina Island, Cape Mudge, Hernando Island, and Savory Island are all glacial moraine structures. So those were sediments that were carried by the ice as they carved the mountains and they carved the steep fjords of Desolation Sound and the inlets. And then when the ice melted, it dropped that material and created those moraineal structures. And those structures are only ah, maybe 10,000 years old. When we look at a structure like um, Manson Spit, Shark Spit. Those are very familiar to us courtesans. 
Those spits were formed by light sand material being picked up off of those south-facing moraine reefs like the Sudal Point um, Reef or the Marina Reef, and the current carries it northward. And then where the current changes or slows down, that sediment is dropped out, and it becomes those northward-facing spits. Rebecca's spit is another nice example. But it's only a matter of 10,000 years. Those structures are still changing. So, um, yeah, nothing's static there. And uh, we can see our Manson spit definitely changing. And when I'm underwater, sometimes we drop a mooring block and come back two years later, and the mooring block's under sand. And then come back three years later, and it's exposed again because everything shifts down there. So that is basically how this area formed. We live in an area of extreme ecological diversity, like I mentioned. Let's go to Desolation Sound first. I'm sure a lot of you have been there. It is surrounded by high mountains. Those mountains, they don't end at the waterline. That is a deep glacially ground fjord with its whole its own ecosystem. When we look out at the mountains today, we see lots of snow up there. And in fact, up above Butte Inlet, the Homathco Ice Field is the largest ice field in North America. Contiguous ice field in North America. And that ice and snow at this time of year is melting and flowing down the mainland drainages the Toba River, the Brem River, the Southgate and in Butte Inlet, and the Butte River, and all the other little creeks and rivers that drain into this area. And that carries a tremendous amount of fresh water that deposits it on top of the ocean water. Now, if you imagine a map of Vancouver Island and look at where we're situated... You can't be much further away from the Pacific Ocean and still be in salt water than to be on Cortez Island because you're halfway up the biggest island on the whole west coast of the Americas. That would be Vancouver Island, right? And this is where the tides meet. And I'll talk a little bit about tides in a moment. But just know that this is where the tides meet as the flood tide comes down from the north around Cape Scott at the north end of Vancouver Island. It comes uh, south. And then the tide, the flood tide also goes around Victoria and comes north up the inside and they meet. The tides meet just about here. So when you go up into uh, Desolation Sound, that really is a backwater area. Yeah, the tide, tidal exchange, it'll go up and down maybe five meters in a day. But because it is so deep, and in fact, just underneath Mount Denman in Humphrey Channel, between Mount Denman and East Redonda Island, that channel's only, oh, I would estimate that channel to be about two and a half nautical miles wide. Well, it's 2,400 feet deep in that channel. That's the second deepest sounding on the BC inland coast. That's the second deepest depth. It's incredible topography up there. 
And because of the overall volume of the area, there isn't a lot of tidal current. That fresh water sits on top of the seawater. The seawater doesn't exchange with the Pacific Ocean in the first place so that it gets a chance to warm up. But that fresh water forms a a layer on top of the seawater that can be about seven meters thick. And it catches the sun's heat. And desolation sound, it warms up in the summertime. So by the end of June, early July, um, to into the mid-20s on a nice, still, hot summer's day. Now, this isn't like going to the Smelt Bay Beach on the hot summer afternoon flood tide and laying in six inches of warm water, you know, as, as the tide comes in across the hot sand. We're talking about a layer that can be seven meters deep. And that has profound consequences for the ecosystem up there. For one thing, it's an isolated pocket of water. There's nothing else like it on the BC coast. There's nowhere else in the world that I know of that you can go swimming in water that warm under snow that is that low and that close. How neat is that, right? And that's one of the big attractions to yachters. But it's an isolated pocket of water. So the the wildlife that grows, the marine life that grows off, say, Campbell River, might not be found so much in Desolation Sound. And in fact, if you were going to go on a boat and take a ride, one of the first things that a lot of West Coasters notice missing from our area are vast kelp beds, the giant kelp beds, Neurocystis, Mm, the bull kelp beds, not giant kelp, sorry, the bull kelp beds, which grow everywhere else on the coast, more prolifically on the outside waters where the water is really cold, but not so much in Desolation Sound. In fact, there's very little east of Marina Island. And that's because it is warm, I'm not sure if it's because warm water contains less dissolved oxygen or or if it's just outside of the temperature range of the kelp. But that changes the environment because kelp acts as trees do in the rainforest. They be, it's hidey holes and substrate for things to live on. It's, it's food for things as well. We do have a lot of other types of seaweed that seem to do well, including... The um, sargassum, locally known as the Japweed, because it came over with the Japanese oysters at the end of the 1800s. In fact, they used to just go and pack the oyster larvae in this seaweed and box it up. And then when it got to the BC coast, you would open up the entire box and dump it onto the, onto the beach and the oysters would take off. But also the seaweed does. And that's that fine stringy seaweed that's just in the subtidal zone it's got thousands of little flotation balls on it Uh, a lot of sailboats know it because it fouls sailboat um, propellers very easily and it's um i we don't actually know what it's displaced because uh, there were no records from before then but it's certainly taken a spot in our ecosystem Desolation Sound is a fjord land, like I say. The top, oh, the top 
uh, 10 meters of it on the rocks are pretty barren. Barnacles, oysters, the oysters, the Japanese oysters, the ones that are farmed around here, need warm water to reproduce successfully. And we have the warm water. This is why Cortez Island and this surrounding area is one of the hottest oyster growing areas on the BC coast. But oysters, barnacles, uh, the purple sea star, mussels, those are about the only creatures that can really gain a foothold on the sheer cliffs and the warm, brackish water of Desolation Sound until you get down about 10 meters below the warm water layer. And then you start getting into uh, typical fjord um, flora and fauna. So down deeper, you will find anemones, the, um, mostly the plumose anemones. And then finally, we get the boot sponges. You may have heard of boot sponges because they are a silicious sponge. And silicious sponges have been in the news lately because we've had areas of the Queen Charlotte Sound um, made no fishing areas, marine protected areas, in part to protect the glass reefs that form when these sponges die. They are not like your bath sponge. They have a skeleton that is not protonaceous like your glass sponge. They have glass spicules. They are silicious. And so if you were to try to scrub yourself down with them, you would really take the skin off you because you'd be sanding yourself with glass. They're quite fragile and brittle. They grow really big and they get really old. And of course, things like bottom trawlers and dragging is a hard thing on the um, on their structure. But we have them right in Desolation Sound. Beautiful boot sponges. And then you have ling cod and you have the yellow-eyed uh, rock cod, otherwise known as red snapper, all down deeper. I remember once going to do a dive to unfowl an anchor in Pendrel Sound one day. That's where everybody goes. That's where the water temperatures peak right out is in Pendrel Sound in just a, a side shoot of Desolation Sound in East Redonda Island. And there were people, it was July, and there were people in bikinis, and there were water skiers, and nobody was wearing very much. And I'm in my full wetsuit to go in, and I went, oh, it's so hot, I don't need my gloves. Well, as soon as I got down to 20 meters deep, I was regretting that decision. It is achingly cold down there. So um, this um, environment is indeed very special. Vancouver Aquarium has also noted that the leatherback sea turtle has been seen in Humphrey Channel. They're jellyfish eaters. One thing about the warm water, it suits jellyfish, especially the moon jellies. If we go just to the north of Desolation Sound, you have those big mainland inlets that I already talked a little about, Toba Inlet, Butte Inlet. Butte Inlet itself is 40 miles long. I think it's the second largest, longest uh, mainland inlet on the BC coast. And 
they cleave way back into the BC interior. When you get up to the head of Butte Inlet, you're not in the maritime zone anymore. You're more in the interior. And huge, big mountains. And big, big water coming off the rivers and waterfalls. So the water is that glacial blue-green. And again, um, very, very different environment. So the salmon do go up there to spawn. Um, and Butte Inlet is interesting because it has all five species of our Pacific salmon that run through it to get to their spawning grounds. But sockeye salmon, they need a freshwater lake to spend their first year in. And there is no freshwater lake that they can access up those rivers. The only place it's known to happen, the sockeye salmon fry spend their first year in the top layer of the Butte Inlet waters because it's so fresh. It mimics a lake. How neat is that? Then as we move a little bit to the west of Cortez Island, we get into the tidal rapid area. Another completely different environment. So we talked a little bit about the tides earlier. The tides meet here, yeah. But now I want you to imagine the map of Vancouver Island. We talked about the Salish Sea to the south, that big open body of water. But then to the north of Cortez Island, Vancouver Island mashes up against the mainland coast and it's a myriad of islands and channels. And when the tide comes in from the north, it's got to run through all those narrow channels. And so you get tidal rapids, places like Beasley Pass, Surge Narrows, Hole in the Wall, the, you know, the Euclita Rapids, all names that are fairly evocative of a dynamic environment. The tidal rapids will get up to 15 knots in Seymour Narrows. 15 knots. So Misty Isles, if you've been out on there, on her, she does six knots. A big BC ferry, like one of the um, Spirit of Vancouver Island, say, does about 25 knots. So when you're talking about a 15-knot current, you're talking about a major flow that produces whirlpools, upwellings, um, whirly gigs, overfalls, and it's cold water coming straight down Johnstone Strait from the Pacific Ocean. It's very well oxygenated water. And so only a few miles to the north and west of Cortez Island, once you get into that tidal rapid area, you've got massive kelp beds. And it is a very prolific intertidal area. Then, as we move just to the south of Cortez Island, we have those mainland, sorry, those moraine reefs that I already talked about. Those reefs on Sudal Point, Marina Island, Hernando, and Savory Island. And those reefs stick way to the south of the islands. The Sudal Point Bellboy is about a half a mile offshore of Sudal Point. So that reef sticks that far out, okay? 
Um, some boats make the mistake of trying to cut across, and we occasionally, um, I'd say once every five years or so, end up with boats on the reef on an ebb tide. But that reef is an incredible structure. It is made up of, there is sand underneath it, but of big boulders that had been carried by the glaciers, a real interesting cobble mix with lots and lots of interstitial spaces where creatures, mostly fish, can hide and can lay eggs. One of my favorite things to do is in the low tides of July is go out to those reefs and listen for the midshipman fish grunting and singing You'll notice that it's also a favorite thing for the eagles to do. If you ever go around those reefs on an ebb tide by boat, you'll see eagles sitting on the big boulders out there, just waiting for sh- uh, fish to be stranded um, in by the outgoing tide. There's octopus out there. There's all kinds of creatures. And those, um, those reef structures, the sand area around them with their eelgrass beds make fantastic nurseries for fish. That is a little bit about this area, an overview. Oh, I just have so many questions now. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> um, that's uh, okay. Well, that's, I feel like we just covered lots of ground in, well, what, let's see, many millions of years. Of, um, I've caught my breath. Yeah, Can I yeah. keep going? Oh, yeah. Please, <laughs> please keep going. Um, some, one, one of the, I, I would still like to know a tiny bit more about, um, I mean, so this may be pressing your knowledge, but why then when you go up the mainland of Vancouver, the uh, Vancouver the, Island, a Van- the no, a Vancouver, yeah. Oh, okay. So, so, and it's all these inlets, and it, I mean, it's more islandy than actual islands, right? I mean, in the sense that all of a sudden, oh, whoa, this is this is this is a bit of land. It's not an island. There's peninsulas and all these, um, air, you know, cut-ins and jagged areas and places you have to take ferries, even though it's on the mainland. Is that from it, like the sub? going down and then it scraped away land or like what what or that's erosion what happened there do you- all right so yes yeah, so as we go up the mainland coast we have deep fjords and those fjords were ground out by the glaciers there are underlying rock structures underneath it that uh, may have facilitated the glaciers grinding out those particular areas so here's a good imagination thing Imagine yourself playing with a bunch of plaster scene. You've got maybe six or seven colors of plaster scene. Roll it out with a rolling pin. Make flat sheets out of each color. Then pile them. Pile a couple on top of each other. And then mash them together. Tear them apart a little bit. Pile them on top of each other. Mash them and add another color. And then do the same thing and add another color and do the same thing. And when you're finished, you've basically got what the geological map of Cortez Island, the mainland coast, right through to Alberta looks like. Once you get past the Rocky Mountains, 
there's only a couple colors of plaster seen and they're all fairly well stratified but here it is a massive hodgepodge of different materials brought in at different times upheaved carried whatever if you go to the cortez museum and take a look on the steps there are several examples of buccia boulders now buccia are stocked clam those fossils are about 130 million years old they came up on rangalia those particular boulders that we've been looking for around cortez island and the discovery and the Discovery Islands, have survived an incredible ride. They wandered up with Rangalia across the ocean, smashed into the western North American plate, didn't get subducted, somehow stayed on top, somehow avoided massive erosion from glaciers, from uh, rain, from wind, somehow were carried by glaciers and deposited on beaches that are, as you know, if you've ever walked the beaches here, mostly granitic rubble, sharp angular granite rocks or, or cliffs or sand. And every once in a while, you'll come across a piece of sedimentary rock, mudstone, that looks completely out of place. You crack it open and it is full of these clam fossils. So when you go to the museum, look at those steps, look at those fossils, and just think about the journey they took. It's amazing. As you go up the BC coast, if you go one mile up the BC coast, you pass 30 miles of coastline. And that directly alludes to the um, torturous and convoluted structure of the coast the deep fjords the islands that make this area up it's just a very complex geological place complex in lots of ways actually (laughs) (laughs) always knew we were different out here Okay, so you can uh, continue your your storytelling or I can ask you more specific questions. I was just going to touch on the weather as well because Cortez Island is in a transition area for weather. Um, As storms come in off the Pacific Ocean and they encounter the mountains on Vancouver Island, the air masses are forced upward, they cool, and it rains on the West Coast. And those of you that have been out to Tofino and Euclid know that. But then that air mass comes across the mountains, sinks, and as it sinks, it dries. And then it crosses the Strait of Georgia, the Salish Sea. If there's going to be a blue hole in the clouds in this area, you can look out over Middle Match Island and down the middle of the Salish Sea, and that's where the clouds will be the least. And in fact, Middle Natch Island, that lies three miles to the south of Sudal Point, it is considered to be semi-arid. It gets in the neighborhood of 75 centimeters of precipitation a year. And that's ah, roughly half of what we get on the south end of Cortez Island and a third of what they get in Campbell River. So, 
Yeah, the uh, the climate here changes quite radically. By the way, Middle Natch Island is as far north as you're going to find prickly pear cactus naturally occurring on the coast. That's pretty cool. And our arbutus trees that blanket the south bluffs and manzanita that blanket the south bluffs of Cortez Island, well, you don't find those more than maybe 20 nautical miles north of here. So this is an area of a climatic transition because north of here, we lose the stabilizing heat sink effect of the Salish Sea, that big body of water that stabilizes our temperature. You can imagine that. And the mainland and North America jam up against each other. Sorry, the mainland and Vancouver Island jam up against each other and you're more influenced by the high mountains on the mainland coast and the deep, deep fjords with their outflow winds. And so it's wetter, windier, and cooler as soon as you get north of the Cortez Island, Campbell River area. So again, that just, uh, just adds to the diversity and the interest of the area. Can we talk more about weather? Yeah. <laughs> it's Cortez. We like weather to talk about not, weather. I know. <laughs> the whole area. I mean, what um, I find shocking is the massive difference in, from my experience, at least, from the northern part of Cortez even to the southern part of Cortez or the, mount, the difference in rainfall between Quadra and Cortez. So are we actually getting different weather systems or like why would there be such a difference in such a short a small distance yeah like i said the weather here eh, we are in a transition zone so the weather the weather will or will change quite rapidly or be different in in different areas um and like i say middle natch island gets half the rain that the south tip of cortez gets right just it's the local topography and the local weather effects and of course uh the top end of cortez island bullock bluff faces right into butte inlet it'll get those heavy outflow winds so did does squirrel cove more than we do down in the mansons area um the heavy outflow winds in the winter time so they'll get more snow up there than we do down on the southern end of cortez island and uh, Quadra Islands just a little bit further over towards the Vancouver Island Mountains. They get a little more rain, a little more snow. Plus, they already are tucked up a little more into the Vancouver Island mainland jam where Cortez Island, at least the Sudal Point part, is really out in more or less open water, surrounded by more or less open water. So, yeah, um, it's an extremely variable and extremely dynamic and fun place to explore. Here's another really cool thing just to think about. I talked about tidal rapids and how that brings cold oxygenated water down and drives huge marine life just to the north and west of us. But what causes a tidal rapid? It's a difference in water height. So... The difference between high tide on Cortez Island and Point Atkinson 
down by Vancouver, which is about 100 nautical miles away, is 15 minutes. What that means is, is as the tidal bulge, the, the water bulge comes in the Juan de Fuca Strait and starts coming up the Salish Sea, it only takes about 15 minutes for that tidal bulge to make it to Cortez Island. That's pretty cool. But just to the north of the, tidal, of the tide rapids, Owen Bay, Owen Bay is about seven miles north of Surge Narrows, the community of Surge Narrows on Reed Island. And the Surge Narrows is within 12 minutes of Point Atkinson in terms of tidal timing as well. But if you were to look at the tides in Owen Bay, just on the other side of the tidal rapids, it's two and a half hours out of phase. Well, if we have two high tides and two low tides in a 24-hour period, which is what we have, then two and a half hours represents a quarter of one of those tidal cycles. And so you can see how the tidal height difference at Hole in the Wall or at Surge Narrows forms to create those tidal rapids, which can flow at 12, up to 15 knots in Seymour Narrows. I remember quite a few times taking Misty Isles through Beasley Passage, which is just by Surge Narrows, and running with the tide, say a 10 or 12 knot tide, and when you get to the choke point, you actually drop down a one meter step which is pretty exciting in a big vessel. Uh, back when we could travel. Yeah, last back when year. we could travel. Back when we could travel last year. Um, and next year, <laughs> if you're excited about seeing all these places I'm talking about, please, please check out uh, Misty Isles Adventures, Jonas and Amy, and Kai Harvey doing her um, Misty Isles kayaking Um they're going to need your business after this year, that's for sure. And we're going to be more eager than ever to explore our local areas, I hope. Um, I, so I got to ride the tidal bore in the Bay of Fundy. Uh -huh. And that has a huge differential, I think up to nine meters. Um, Probably even more than that. Maybe more than that. Yep. I'm forgetting. I think it was a little more up on it <laughs> a year ago. Um, and so we don't get as much of a differential because it's so much deeper here. Is that? Uh, no, it's not so much that. But you can imagine what happens as, as the moon, predominantly, drags the water across the oceans, right? And how the water slops up against the continental shelf and then the actual land it'll get funneled in places it will get um the the height will be amplified in places some places it'll be more subdued just because of the local geography topography bathymetry of the ocean um that's 
essentially why we are on about the same latitude as the Bay of Fundy here. So it's not a difference in latitude because, of course, the moon and the sun both pull the, the ocean waters. And, uh, but they only go to about 23 degrees north or south of the equator. So um, that's where their pull is concentrated. Um, yeah, that's the best answer I can give you. It's because of the bathymetry in that area and how it catches the water that's being slopped across the ocean. You could just say pathimetry and then we'll be like, oh, okay, right. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> um, you, I've, you've traveled us through time and a great deal of distance. Um, I'd like to know what you've seen um, in your career and the changes of things like sea stars and, um, and jellyfish and the creatures that we know are indicating some things about the status and, of the environment and, and the health of the environment. Uh, what have you observed? And, and Sure. This is a really important question to us as islanders. I mean... Being on an island, being surrounded by water really defines how we think of ourselves. And those of you that are interested in land use and forestry debates, well, as we do things on Cortez Island in the forests, as we um, protect or impact wildlife corridors, it's got a, it's got a definitive action because we are surrounded by water. Anything that we do, we can see the results of. We can't say, oh, that's because those animals moved in from outside, right? So the, the uh, land being an island really defines how we see ourselves, even to the point of having two ferry rides to get to Campbell River. I mean, that makes Cortez Islanders a little more independent in action and in thought, I would say. Um, but it also makes us realize, especially in times such as this, how dependent we could be on the off-island uh, produce and products when we are separated by two ferries. But it's the ocean that ties us to the rest of the world. And I'm really lucky because I get to slip beneath the waves in my dive gear and go beyond the parameter, that the border that most uh, Cortez Islanders define themselves by. And so, yeah, get to go down and have a look at what's going on. I've been diving off Cortez Island for about 30 years. Before that, I was diving down off the Victoria waterfront. And, uh, and as I've already indicated, because of the environment, we can't compare the, that long-term um, snapshot because, because Victoria has got a very different environment than the area around Cortez Island. And even around Cortez Island, you're looking at four distinct zones. So what have I seen in terms of differences? Well, for one thing, I will be heading down to Hernando Island as soon as this southeast wind drops. I'm heading down with Crazy Horse Marine to go maintain all the moorings down there. 
and I have been going down to Hernando for about 20 years. And up until just a few years ago, if I was dragging a mooring chain across the bottom of the seafloor through the sand that makes up Hernando Island, literally, Dungeness crabs would be exploding out of the sand by mid-May, early June, as they come up shallow to mate. And last year, I was swimming down there, and I swum miles. I did not see a crab. If you are walking our beaches, and you have a look around, there's not a lot of red rock crabs out and about right now. And in fact, I've been looking and have not seen very many at all in the last year or so. So I was just reading a report on how Dungeness crabs are one of the creatures that are having a hard time accreting shell when they are young. Our oceans are getting more acidic. The ocean around here is getting more acidic. I'm not a researcher. I just do some reading. But the oyster farmers also tell us that um, that they were having a hard time getting oyster seed, especially from the uh, oyster setting plant in Puget Sound because the ocean water is getting more acidic. The creatures can't put down their calcium carbonate shells fast enough in this more acidic water. It doesn't take much and it tips the balance. So I will be looking for crabs here this coming spring and considering what I see. We've also had a rise in commercial fishing of crabs. That may also, well, I mean, sport fishing. Lots of sport fishers go out there for crabs. That may also have its uh, impact on the area. Um, up until a few years ago, if I was diving and found an octopus den, I would see quite a bit of crab shell. There's been a couple octop- uh, octopus dens that I've been uh, having a look at over the last, well, since last summer. And uh, I was really surprised that even that they were on a sandy bottom with a freshwater drainage with some eelgrass beds, what I would have thought was perfect Dungeness territory. There were no crab shells out in front of their dens. It was all moon snails and clam shells. And uh, so that's another thing, though, that I have seen more of in the area are small, giant Pacific octopus. One of the things uh, that's kind of got me amused is that the mooring blocks that we've been putting down, and these are mooring blocks to anchor boats that tie up at the surface, or sometimes they anchor docks. But we have uh, about a four-inch sewer pipe running through them so that a chain can be run through and we make fast to the chain. And then when the chain wears out, we can replace it. Those sewer pipes have become little octopus dens. Sometimes I'll stick my head in there to look at the chain and, oh, there's an octopus looking back at me. And uh, that's, that's very nice to see. You asked uh, specifically about the sea stars in the area. Well, we have many, many species of sea stars off Cortez Island. One of the most common and certainly visually stunning is the purple sea star. And uh, 
it, like all the other sea stars on the BC coast and from Alaska down to Oregon, suffered from the sea star wasting syndrome that swept through this area, what was it, six years ago or so. This syndrome, that's what they're calling it, because the causative agent, I don't know if it's been clearly defined yet. It could be viral. It could be heat stress. It could be as acid. It could be all kinds of things, but it affected different species at different times in different places. And some areas were completely wiped out of the purple sea stars. I remember visitors to the island and locals going to the beach and looking at these sea stars that were just turning into balls of goo on the beach. And that was the purple sea star. But you know what? Over on Kinghorn Island, just at the entrance to Desolation, just off um, Squirrel Cove there, that same year, I was seeing walls of purple sea stars. Apparently, off the Port McNeil area, the leather stars were severely impacted. But I go down to Middlenatch and look down into the water, and there was lots of leather stars. So it was a really interesting syndrome in that it affect different populations. It appeared to affect different populations in different areas. One of the sea stars that was pretty much universally affected was the sunflower star, that big multi-rayed sea star, um, Pycnopodia helianthoides, if you need to look it up. And I had to look it up in my head there. Had, had a moment there. Um, Pycnopodia helianthoides, the sunflower star, Helios, the sun. It's one of the most voracious predators in the ocean, at least in the intertidal zone and the, and the subtidal zone. And uh, it moves fairly quickly for a sea star. I've seen it in oh, 30 meters of water, excavating big pits in the sand, digging for clams, yet it was also one that we would find in the, just in the subtidal or the low intertidal. It really didn't like to get caught out of the water because it was a soft-bellied, soft-bodied sea star, and if it was caught out of the water, then the seagulls uh, would really like to slurp it down, and it would generally just dry out really quickly, not like the purple sea stars, which are fine out of the water for a few hours. Anyway, those sunflower stars have virtually disappeared, apparently all up and down the West Coast. I have seen a few lately. I I mean, I have seen a few over the years, but two days ago, I was diving Mary Point, no, I was diving just off of Rabja's Day and I saw uh, two small ones. So that's really hopeful. Um, you know, we're going through our own pandemic and we don't understand what's really going on there. And the sea stars have already gone through their pandemic and hopefully they're on the uphill now because when we lose a predator like the sunflower star, it changes the whole structure of the ecosystem that they live in. Interestingly, the purple sea star 
uh, is also known as the ochre sea star because it's the same species that on the west coast of Vancouver Island appears more orange and red. In the inshore waters here, it's more purple. And uh, they were wondering if it was a temperature thing that was causing it to uh, melt away, to succumb to the syndrome. Yet, it is one of the more prolific ones in Desolation Sound, which, as we've already talked about, is warm, brackish water. And they are the main grazers of the barnacles and small oysters in this area. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure what the causative agent is for that. But you're seeing more of them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, if we walk down, if I walk down to Cortez Bay to my boat now and walk down the ramp at low tide, they're... they're I think uh, Zella and Mela counted 12 or something that they could see from the boat ramp just one day before yesterday. So can you talk a little bit about um, the problem with jellyfish? The problem with jellyfish? Or would you even characterize it as a problem? I'm not going to characterize it as a problem. This area has always had a big moon jelly population. (sighs) Would you like to hear a story about sex and world domination that has nothing to do with Donald Trump? Oh, yes. Yes, I would. (laughs) Let's talk about the moon jelly, Aurelia. That's its Latin name. What we're seeing... When we see that beautiful translucent translucent white jellyfish, it's got four circles on the top, very, very short tentacles. It does have the harpoon cells that all of those creatures have, the sea jellies, the sea anemones have. They've got harpoon cells, but its harpoon cells are only effective against plankton. It's a plankton eater. They don't affect us, okay? Whereas the lion's mane jelly, that big red one, sometimes the bell can be, oh, like 20 centimeters across, and the tentacles can be five meters long or so. Those tentacles do have stinging cells that will give us quite a nasty, rashy burn. And uh, so you want to avoid those. But the moon jellies, you can go ahead and pick them up and have a look at them. What you're looking at is their sexual stage and the gonads are just in the bell and they mass up in the fall times, sometimes in in places like the Gorge Harbor um, in late September, early October. When I dive in to check moorings, it's like swimming in jelly. There's so many, okay, they get collected up by the uh, currents and the tides because they are planktonic. They move with the current. And that's their sexual stage. They get ready to reproduce. They release their gametes into the water. Their gametes find each other by smell, taste, chemoreceptor. And they together form a larval form, which settles down to the bottom and becomes a... How do you describe this without using your hand? It becomes a polyp, which is 
like a sea anemone, a hydrozoan, like a sea anemone. That means tentacles upwards, okay? And it sits on the bottom. It's only a little thing. It sits on the bottom and it feeds all winter and it catches plankton and it feeds away and it feeds away. And then in the spring, it can asexually reproduce, which means the whole thing can split right down the middle longitudinally and produce two of these um, hydrozoan polyp things, okay? And then in the spring, what happens is just underneath the tentacles, it starts forming a layer, uh, layers of plates, and each plate pops off, flips over, turn, and turns upside down so that the tentacles are down and becomes a new little jellyfish that goes off to become the new sexual stage and, and swims off to grow up. So here is a creature that has a sexual stage and two chances of asexual reproduction. And the seas, when they warm up and become more acidic, they come, become more primordial. They, they become closer to what the ancient oceans were like, which really suits the jelly-type creatures, okay? So these areas have always been very warm and, and suited to uh, sea jellies. Um, they're getting a little more acidic. Personally, you know, the ocean is so variable some years we see masses of those lion's mane uh, sea jellies and people think we have a problem. I hardly saw any last summer for whatever reason. Those of you that have been on the island for a while might remember maybe 10 years ago, the ocean was fluorescent orange with a plankton called Noctiluca, which is a photo uh, bioluminescent um, plankton, which just formed a orange scum layer on on the surface and then when it rotted back it stank and it was hard to find a place to go swimming where you didn't come out smelling like oily fish um, and that was a one-off the oyster farmers deal with one-offs quite often you know they they'll have a bloom of a certain type of plankton that that closes production or starts killing small oysters or feeds the oysters but um the why and how of that is, uh, it's a complicated system. Love it. All right. It is about around the top of the hour. Is it? Uh, yes. So you are listening to Friday's Folk You Talk Radio Show with Michael Moore. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie. We are going to get a little bit of music, of, of ocean specific music that that Mike has put together for us here. Um, while we're listening, I encourage you to call in with your questions. Uh, you, I, I, I'm really getting this down now, the call-in um, options. So you can call me while we're listening to music. You'll have about five minutes or so, and I'll take a couple callers, and you can ask questions about the marine environment, things that you're seeing. Let us know what you're seeing or what you wish you were seeing or what's different or what you've always wondered um we've got we've got a, a fantastic mariner here it's a great time to share your observations ask your questions 
So please do call in. Um, you don't go right on the air. You call in, you speak with me, um, you can speak with Mike. Uh, if you have some fantastic antidote you want to share, then we can put you on the air, but we won't do that without your permission. So it's 250-935-0200. We encourage you to call in now while you're listening to the following uh, Mariner-designed um, music at Cortez Radio CKTZ 89.5 FM, 250-935-0200. I am going to, oh, oh, uh, Mike's going to tell us a little something about what we're about to listen to. When we come back, I'll do a few more diving stories. So to set you up for that, here's Breathing Underwater by Metric. Yeah, I can see the end oh, 
You are listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. This is Friday's Folk You Friday Talk, and we have Mariner, Mariner Michael Moore here telling us a little bit more about the marine environment around Cortez um, and the area, including Quadra. Thank you so much to John from Quadra Lumber, who called in to thank us for today's show. We really appreciate our Quadra listeners. So thank you all. So uh, Mike has promised us a few more stories. Um, so let's let him at it. Thanks, Manda. Yeah, I thought I'd talk a little bit about what I've seen actually underwater when I'm breathing underwater. And um, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about was the uh, oyster farms in the area. Um. If you look out from the gorge and you see the bee islets or the island sea farms farms out there, and you might not know exactly what's going on. You just see a lot of rafts. Well, underneath those rafts are hanging strings. And those strings can support trays of single oysters or they can support clusters of oysters. They might even nowadays be supporting mussels. But the important thing is, is that this string structure extends below the surface down to about eight meters deep. And that creates a pseudo kelp forest. It creates substrate and structure for things to grow on and fish to hide in. So it's actually kind of cool diving in there. I, I dive in there to take sea stars off the oyster clusters sometimes. Catch and release. I just drop them and let them go to the deep. And then they can crawl up onto the bee islet rocks or, or the walls of the gorge. But um, the uh, when you're diving in there and, you're, and seeing just the profusion of of marine creatures. There's sea anemones, nudibranchs, um, sea squirts, those are called tunicates, um, all manner of creatures in there, and then schools of fish swimming through. And if you go to my YouTube channel, that's Mike Moore's YouTube channel, there is a film of the bee islets that I did um, just to show you what is going on underneath those oyster rafts. The other uh, side of that, of course, is that the shellfish industry needs to be extremely careful not to release plastics into the water. That would be bits of line, lost stacks of oyster trays, just anything like that. And uh, the uh, bottom underneath the rafts is a matrix of oyster shell, fallen oyster shell, line, plastics, and other detritus um, down there. So we do certainly need to take more care of our marine environment, which is feeding the oysters, which feeds us and our economy. The other, uh, kind of fun thing that I've been playing with and I've alluded to is, uh, the octopus in the area. And, uh, we have giant Pacific octopus up here. They don't get as big, not that I've seen, they don't seem to get as big as they do down off of Victoria. When I was a young man fishing giant 
Pacific octopus by diving for them. The biggest one I caught was 89 pounds. And I don't think I've seen one up here uh, more than maybe 10 or so pounds, right? An 89 pounder has got suction cups the size of dinner plates. And it's quite a it's quite an adventure catching those guys but we do have octopus up here i don't catch them anymore i'm happy to say that they are a really really uh cool creature um they are the giant pacific so they only grow in this area and they i mean there are octopuses all over the world but the giant pacific are typical to this area and they have three hearts. They have a diffuse consciousness. Now, we can't really measure their intelligence too well. They can run mazes. They can figure out how to unscrew lids. They can figure out how to get out of aquariums. They can figure out how to get back into the aquarium. They can, they can figure out a lot of stuff. So we think that they're intelligent. But I would just like to propose to you that if we are ever going to understand aliens from another planet, we need to understand the octopus first because they are the most alien intelligence on earth. They are a mollusk. They are in the same phylum as the oysters and mussels and clams and that you eat and the slugs that you kill in the garden, right? Um, they, they, they are... Uh, so different to us and they are studying octopus and trying to get a handle on their intelligence and they think that they have a diffuse consciousness and intelligence more than half of their neurons are in their body and in their tentacles and they think that the tentacles actually are capable of making decisions on their own without the decision actually going back to the central processing unit like it is in a human. And that tentacles may even have handedness, which means that they might have a dominant or a non-dominant personality. Well, you know, humans, I guess, also have that because I certainly know my right hand is way more dominant and aggressive than my left hand because I do everything with my right hand. But uh, just imagine being in a body that has no bones, can squeeze through very narrow things, can bend a tentacle around a corner. It can't see with its tentacle, but it can smell taste with its tentacle and that's one thing i was playing with uh, a little while ago i took a can of seafin tuna only the best tuna for the octopus took a can of seafin tuna down and opened it up in front of an octopus den wafted the oil into the octopus den and that octopus she came out and she was so excited to smell that tuna her tentacles came wrapping right out and so I fed her and she, yeah, I could watch the tuna going up the suction cups towards the mouth, which is at the center of the tentacles. And uh, so I fed her for a while and then I swam off and found another octopus, another uh, like 10 or 12 pound octopus. And I, um, oh, and I wafted some tuna oil into that. Well, that octopus was completely different. It rejected the tuna. It spat it away from me, 
But what it did was it wrapped its tentacles right up me. And I was working barehanded so that they could smell, taste me through their suction cups, through their tentacles. And uh, it was really interested in me. It just wrapped itself up around me. And we held hands for quite a bit of time there. And uh, I just got to uh, be with the octopus. Now, octopus have got a beak. That's how they take their prey. They eat crabs, they eat clams, they eat moon snails, and deeper they'll eat scallops. And they immobilize their crab by biting the crab and injecting a little bit of venom into it. But I've never known anybody to be bitten by a giant Pacific octopus. They're not like the blue-ringed octopus, the famous blue-ringed octopus of Australia, which is deadly. However, last spring, I did get bit by an octopus. But it wasn't the giant Pacific. We have another octopus in the area that lives deep. Does not get nearly as big. I can't remember its Latin name, I'm sorry. But it comes up in prawn traps. And it doesn't get to be more than about, I believe the mantle cavity gets to be about 10 centimeters or so. And the tentacles will be uh, longer than that. So it's a small octopus. And this one had come in, come up in a prawn trap from a commercial prawn fisherman. And I'd said, uh, Forrest, Forrest Berman, my deckhand away in the Zodiac to, uh, to the prawn fisherman to get some prawns for our clients. We were doing a mothership trip and we were in Humphrey Channel. And just uh, before Forrest peeled off from the fish boat, they gave him this octopus, put it in the bottom of the Zodiac and uh, said, here, show your, your tourists this. And so he brought it back, and uh, so I let it crawl up my arm, and I was showing everybody. But this poor little guy had come up from over 300 feet deep. You know, he'd been out of the water for a while. He was extremely distressed, and I was going to put him in the water real quick, but he gave me a little bite first, and that was just so cute. And then I put him in the water. He inked and went away. So there's something to think about when you're in the waters swimming this summer off the beaches is the giant Pacific octopus. What's an octopus bite feel like? It was, it was, hmm, what did it feel like? Ah, no worse than like a little cat claw or something like that. Not where they scratch you, but they just dig your claw into it. It drew a little bit of blood. It was a little um, triangle shaped um, uh, cut, but it wasn't deep or anything. It didn't leave a flapper or anything like that. It was just like, aw. Little guy really wants to go back down. So we don't have to spend our, our nights worrying about it too much. <laughs> no. Do you have a, a last story? Oh. We probably have time for I would say one more. One, one more story. Well, right now, the waters are warming up really quickly. Two weeks ago, I dive in a wetsuit. And two weeks ago, I would be in the water and... You know, I can spend time in the water, but I wouldn't say that after spending two or two and a half hours in the water, I was exactly comfortable anymore, but I can still work it. But now the waters are warming up, but um, they're also getting really murky. The plankton bloom has happened and uh, that water, that deep, sorry, that dark water, that bright green water, let's call it that, goes down. Hmm, I was off Mary Point and it was down at least 40 feet. So what would that be? 12 or 14 meters deep, that 
planktonic, dark, murky water. And uh, so that'll that'll make our oysters and mussels uh, grow up pretty quickly. And uh, the water temperatures in Desolation Sound off Cortez Island are, are going to rapidly warm up. It'll be fine for swimming. And um, I already told you why. But it's interesting to think, too, that in Desolation Sound, I think the water temperatures peak out by about the first week of June, maybe the second week of June, because that's when that freshwater flow is the maximum and it catches the sun's heat. And then by August, when everybody thinks it should be really warm, it's actually starting to cool down. Yeah, so yeah, we'll start swimming here in a couple weeks. What's the temperature differential in general between uh, winter and summer here? Yeah, um, well, the temperatures are very local again. It, you know, there's a lot of difference between the west side of Cortez Island, like trying to swim off of Whale Town, say, and the east side of Cortez. And then the further east you move up into Desolation Sound, it keeps getting warmer. But if we were to look at the weather and ocean buoy that is just south of Middle Natch Island in the middle of the Salish Sea, it's called um, Century Shoal, the Century Shoal buoy. And you can get this off the Weather uh, Environment Canada weather website. Uh, the temperatures in the winter of the ocean, the sea surface temperature is around 8 degrees and then in the summertime, it will get up to 16 or so degrees in the middle of the Strait of Georgia. Is that Fahrenheit or Celsius? Celsius. <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> and you're, you're going to ruin my, my winter swimming cred if you tell people that on the east side, it's, it's not as cold in the winter as on the uh-huh. west side. <laughs> yeah. I think in the wintertime, the temperatures are pretty uniform because we don't have that sun heating of the fresh water flow that's my experience yep. although uniform is there's still there's still a, a version from petrifyingly cold to just quite brisk and yep. uh, <laughs> um, so how about we have another uh, mariner uh, curated song for our listeners you are listening to cktz 89.5 fm on cortez community radio on the web at cortezradio.ca and we're going to get another marine approved song here um maybe we'll even have it uh, introduced by by the mariner himself we've had michael moore speaking about the marine environment around cortez today and we have been a lucky receiver of some great stories if we are continue to be lucky he might send us a a photo of his um uh, uh octopus girlfriend that we can put on the show notes on cortez radio and cortezcurrents.ca uh so do you want to tell us what we're about to listen to Sure, we're going to listen to Carly's song by Fifth Wheel. It came off the Caring for Our Coast CD. And uh, I love this song, especially in these days when we are feeling the impacts of our imbalance with nature and how it's affecting humanity now. And we look forward to how we're going to live going forward. Oh, my gosh, 
the water out there is so quiet with the lack of boat traffic and everything and everything feels so peaceful and this song speaks to that a little bit Welcome back to CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Community Radio. You have been listening to Friday's Folk You Talk with Michael Moore, was our special guest today, Mariner Michael Moore. I'm just using that word a lot. I really like it. Um, and he's been talking about the uh, environment, the marine environment around Cortez. We got a number of calls. Thank you, Angela. Um, thanking Mike for his amazing program. Um, this will be also as a podcast that you can listen to again and again, both on CortezRadio.ca as well as on um, CortezCurrents.ca. So you now have two options for getting uh, Folk You Friday radio shows again. Um, so I'm saying goodbye right now to Michael Moore, and we're saying hello to Jenny Hartwick, who is going to tell us 
what she's been doing in the garden this week. Um, I'm I, sorry, I have to speak out loud when I am also doing things on the soundboard. So that was me telling myself that I have to turn her mic on. Um, thanks, Jenny, for being here. And Hi, Amanda. Hi. <laughs> Jenny left her kids in the mail lineup, <laughs> which is really long around this time, day, time of day on Fridays. That's that's the warning out there, folks. Multitasking in the time of COVID. <laughs> Multitasking in the time of COVID involves a lot of six feet distancing uh, and lots of lines. So um, you have one of those gardens on Cortez that um, causes me (laughs) to feel so much envy that it's almost paralyzing. Um, But you've always been a source of such like reasonable sound advice. And you also remind me that you experience those feelings about other people and other gardens. So um, I have found you to be many, many times my go to person for all sorts of advice. So it's a real honor. For me to have you in. <laughs> That's really funny that you say that because the one thing I was going to talk about today was my garden envy. <laughs> Perfect. So who who do you garden envy? When I'm gardening envying you, who do you garden envy? There's a lot of amazing gardens on Cortez. A lot of them. And, uh, and I happen to be friends with the people who garden in a lot of them as well. So I get to see them on a regular basis. Um... And so I think my my biggest thing is that my garden's really wet and I struggle. It's beautiful, um, but there's a lot of moisture in it. And so I'm just naturally several weeks behind most people on the island because the water table is so high. And so the beginning of April rolls around and I'm watching everyone who's peas are up and they have greens and they're having beautiful salads for dinner that they've just harvested themselves and I'm squishing around in half an inch of standing water so that's my garden envy (laughs) and uh and then I catch up and I get to look back in the middle of July and think oh my gosh this is amazing because I haven't watered my garden once in a week and my tomatoes are huge and I catch up but I have to remind myself that Every single year, there's going to be about a month and a half where I just look around and I'm like, I I didn't even know it was possible for people to have have their lettuce up already. So just you talking about your garden garden envy made me feel almost ill. (laughs) Um, So I love gardening. Um, It's one of my favorite activities. This year has been extra difficult again you know I go through my my standard bout of garden envy and and then I start all my things in trays in my greenhouse where they won't drown and I have pea weevils or something in my garden that regularly eats my peas and so I have to grow my peas in a length of gutter in my greenhouse until they're big enough I can put them out and so I look at everyone else's crops that are beautiful and tall and and get a little bit cranky uh, and then uh, and then throw in some uh, some COVID and not having school and all the rest. And one would think that having your children at home with you would be a fantastic opportunity to get them out in your garden and get extra work done. And uh, it was for about the first two hours. And uh, and then it's just become another chore that they're uh, they're get- <laughs> getting dragged into. So it's it's uh added an extra element to the garden this year where frustration 
I just want to say that I think the only people that think that your children are going to be a fantastic help when they're forced to stop schooling and stay at home are those people who either never had children <laughs> or whose children now, or that was many years ago, and they can just look back, you know, There's in fantasy. so many fantastic activities you can do with your kids in the garden, and they last for 20 minutes. And then you're still like, but I have four more hours that I'd like to be out here. What do you mean you don't want to dig another hole and count earthworms? Um, and we, we, <laughs> we coupled it with the smart decision that we, uh, back in February, um, picked out a puppy who's also decided that she wants to follow me around in the garden and dig holes where I am sitting. And so that's been, yeah, that's been an extra fun fun element this year. Conveniently, I'm still so far behind that I actually don't have anything planted except for potatoes, so that doesn't really matter. Um, and I can sit there envious of everyone else with a puppy that's digging up everything. So can we talk a little bit, this is semi-garden related, but I happen to know that right now you're incubating eggs. Um, and and uh, <laughs> uh, my I I. Um, also have chickens and you are my chicken mentor um, and part one of the reasons I have chickens is because I can successfully raise chickens relative to my garden uh, which we would all be dead if we were <laughs> relying on this is also the reason that's so good to have someone like Michael Moore here because whenever I think about the post-apocalyptic times of which we are more or less living in now. And I think, oh no, I can't seem to grow any food. Well, at least I have things I can take out of the ocean and my eggs. So could we tell us a little bit about incubating um, chickens and, and how your kids are involved with that? That was actually, it was a lot easier to engage the children in the chicken project than it was in the, uh, the garden project. Uh, they're Again, they're good for, you know, potting up two cabbages, but when there's, 20 cabbages that goes downhill quickly. Um, 21 days to incubate a batch of eggs. So once you get your incubator up and running and you've got your settings correct, there's not really a lot to do. Uh, but it's it's a fun project because obviously every day for 21 days, there's some development happening and there's, there's something happening. And uh, at different stages, you can take the, uh, the eggs out uh, in the dark and and shine a flashlight uh, through the eggs and then you can actually chart the growth of the chick inside the egg so that's something really neat for the kids to see because it's um, it's a little more um, it's more fast-paced it's great for them to be in the garden and helping but you know the four months it takes from the day you plant your tomato seed to the day you get to eat harvest your plant um, it's easier to relate to the 21 days of, of watching your, uh, your eggs incubate and then watching your chicks hatch. So we have a project happening where every day for 21 days, they have to write down a chicken fact. And then at the end, we'll create a big, a big project board out of it. And we'll have the satisfaction, hopefully, if, uh, if everything's worked out, of watching our chicks hatch. Where do you get your eggs? We get most of our eggs from um, our own hens. We did an order a couple of years ago and have uh, two different kinds of purebreds chickens. We've got purebred Americanas and some uh, cuckoo marins, and we have both uh, hens and roosters of each kind. So we just collect our own eggs. And then this year I also ordered a uh, dozen uh, copper marin 
chicken eggs, which are very, very beautiful, dark chocolate looking colored eggs. And they just look spectacular next to the blue eggs in the incubator. Uh, and so those came from a, just a local farm in Comox. And Jenny was telling me the other day, I have a green egg layer. And so I was like, oh, I want to get more green egg layers. And you were telling me about um, the genetics of how you get blue egg layers and green egg layers and um, um, et cetera. So we, we crossing tell... Crossing things. Yes, crossing so there things. Are, there are specific breeds that lay green eggs. And then depending on how you mix your hen and rooster colors, if you take a brown and a blue and start to cross those, um, it it can either end up brown or blue or some variation in between. And so you can get different shades of the olive and the green and the, the blues and, and even a bluey brown that come out of that depending on what happens. But you don't know what you're going to get. And if your chick hatches, you still got to go that next six months until that hen grows up and starts to lay her first eggs before you realize that, nope, actually all I got was 24 brown egg layers. <laughs> I think it's such, it's such a fun way to kind of play out and experience genetics to some extent in our own life or feel like we are. Perhaps we're not even really experienced. <laughs> but it feels like I'm getting to experience some of it. I think it's it's back to the whole idea of gardening at any state though or just doing any project in the spring it's the you know the weather's warming up it's starting to get sunny we're all kind of coming out of winter cortez mode and uh, everything is growing around us right so it's a really cool opportunity and, and a great time to you know do anything in your garden even if it's planting five lettuce um or to go whole hog and you know do a big garden like I end up with at the end of each year and do chickens or you know whatever you want to do it's uh it's the perfect time of year I this is not my idea but I um my my youngest who is nine about the same age as Jenny's eldest um was cajoled into doing um an experiment with making her own seaweed juice like you put the seaweed in the bucket with the water she left it for a week and now we've got fertilizer something that i've basically in the past paid money for <laughs> and she might try to sell to you <laughs> if she doesn't use it on her own garden so that is one successful project i've gotten my kids to do they're also very excited about planting seedlings um and my youngest has also started taking care of some of the seedlings watering them every day things like that um and that's sort of what I've managed to get them to do. What 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 projects do you have success with? Again, we're so far behind in our garden because of the water table that um, you know, while while I'm complaining about it, um in reality in about two weeks they'll they'll get a little more actively engaged. They each have their own garden bed and we we have a greenhouse full of starts. So I look around at everybody else that has stuff in their garden and I have nothing in my garden, like I said, except for a row of potatoes um, in the driest bed. But what I do have is a greenhouse chock full of starts that are ready to go in. So I tend not to direct seed very much um, and I just have flats of things. And so in the space of a couple of days when I deem that it's dry enough, 
that's when I can really engage the kids. And we go from having a whole bunch of empty beds to really having a ready-made garden. Um, pretty much everything can go out. And, and suddenly I look around and I have beds and beds of greens and leeks and tomatoes and brassicas and, and everything that's just kind of been slowly doing its own thing. So they engage in uh, in the watering in the greenhouse when they're prompted. <laughs> is, it, is it too late for people to to start their own seedlings? No. To put, okay, great. No, absolutely not. And again, you know, it half like I don't things like beets and carrots I people have them in the ground already I probably won't put mine in for another couple of weeks because my garden's too wet and so it's really it really just depends where you are you know if you're in one of the areas on the island that it tends to get less sunshine or more northerly or things like that I mean there's so many little microclimates and and everybody's garden is different and and so I have to keep telling myself I keep coming back to the garden envy. <laughs> I have to keep telling myself, there's those gardens on the island that I envy. Uh, but then you just told me you envy mine. So there we go. <laughs> it all comes around. Everybody gets a garden in the end. I, someday someone's going to envy my garden. There then I'll go. know I've really made it. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Jenny, for being here and um, – and we, we talked earlier with Mike about all the microclimates, so that was a perfect uh, tie-in. And um, I really appreciate. I'm sure you didn't mention garden envy, though. <laughs> we were we, we we talked about a uh, sexual reproduction and do- world domination of um, oysters. Uh, <laughs> not of oysters, but but yeah, but uh, of uh, jellyfish. So <laughs> I think we've had a pretty racy uh, folk university Friday talk show today. <laughs> We are going to play a little bit of music. You can call in if you'd like and share your own garden or ocean stories. You don't go directly on there. You share them with me and then I can put you on there if you want at 250-935-0200. And we are going to continue on with the ocean theme. Um, And let's see if I can manage to play you a song. Maggie and Millie and Molly and May Went down to the beach one day to play Maggie and Millie, Molly and May Went down to the beach one day to play And Maggie discovered a sheltered sign So sweetly she couldn't remember her trouble Friend day. 
Thank you, Natalie Merchant, with Maggie and Millie and Molly and May. Love that song. I was just looking at our wonderful CortezIsland.com tideline and saw that um, there is a Facebook page groups for Quadra Island and Cortez Island gardeners and wannabe gardeners. Um, if you look up Quadra Island and Cortez Island Gardens on Facebook, you should make your way there, or you can go to CortezIsland.com and look on the left side and the post there to learn more about that. Um, they're offering inspiration, ideas, wisdom, all the rest, which, you know, really, we can't, <laughs> really, like you can't have too much of right now. Um. I wanted to also let you know that next week on Friday's Folk You Talk radio show, we are going to learn about twitching or twitchers. Can we, can I use it any way I want? I'm not sure. Do you know what a twitcher is? Corey Dow will be here to share what a twitcher is and help you become a twitcher in your own neighborhood. So 
Uh, I think I'm just going to be a little bit uh, provocative there. Also, we're going to have Helen from Friends of Cortez Island, Foci, come in, as well as I think Jane or someone from Cortez Museum and Archives. They'll come in, all, hopefully all one at a time, so we can help keep our six feet apart in this little studio. Um, we're going to talk about, amongst other things, what's still happening um, to around protecting nature and the environment and Cortez. And in particular, on May 2nd is the annual bird count. And after next week's Folk You Talk show, I'm hoping that you will be ready to feel like you can participate in the bird count this year. So you'll learn everything you need to know about what that is and, and what's happening with it. I'm also working on another project uh, with the help of the Children's Forest and Linnea. What do you think about books? How important are books to you right now? I have been really appreciating books more than ever and appreciating my, um, my perhaps you could call it slight hoarding tendencies towards books. So anyway, I've got a lot of, um, of books myself, so I'm doing pretty well. But what about you? We've got hundreds of donated books that have been sitting around untouched since well before the pandemic, um, and we'd like to get them out to the people who need them, in particular families with kids. So you can let me know at the letter U at folku.ca. In both cases, the U is just the letter U, U at folku.ca. If you are looking for books, particularly children's books, um, but we may be able to also come up with some adult books that we're going to package up um, following all sorts of safety protocols, wearing masks and gloves and books that have not been touched for a very, very long time. And we're going to put them in plastic bags. And we have a couple places that have agreed to serve as drops, such as the Gorge Store. Thank you. Um, and we may also be able to drop some at driveways and things like that. So let me know what you are needing in the form of books. And I'd love to hear from you. While the music's playing, you are always encouraged to call in to 250-935-0200 here at CKTZ 89.5 FM, CortezRadio.ca, and tell me how you're doing. I'd love to hear from you. I've gotten to speak to a number of neighbors this week that I don't always get to speak to, and it was fantastic to hear from a number of different people. So call in anytime. Uh, you can share your stories about gardening, about the marine environment. Just tell me how you're doing. Uh, seek support. Um, give me ideas for future shows. We've got a fantastic May lined up for you here on Folky Radio. Uh, and I love hearing you from you. So we're going to have another song uh, to follow our, our ocean theme, our mariner theme. And while we are playing, you can give a call to the radio. Two five zero nine three five zero two zero zero, and we are going to play "To the Sea" by Jack Johnson. you want it. I've been right here all along. 
Listening to CKTZ 89.5 FM. This has been Manda O'Fox Gillespie for Friday's Folk You Talk Radio Show. We've had a great day as usual. I wanted to let you know about a couple other things happening. Are you missing Vino de Porto, Portuguese tunes with Susanna? That she's kindly lent me her Friday spot so that we could keep bringing you Folk University at the same time that people have been used to having Folk University. Well, you don't have to miss her any longer. You can tune in on Tuesdays, 1130 to 1, and get some uplifting tunes. Um, I really appreciated being able to use this spot, and I hope I continue to get to for a at least a few more weeks. Um, But don't uh, miss um, Susanna's show on Tuesdays. I wanted to remind you that Folk University is an experiment in slow learning. Before, we used to get to meet in person, and now we get to meet virtually over the virus-free airwaves of CKTZ. Part of this experiment is being a living question, asking In these divisive times, can we use our ideas, our interests, and our skills to bring us closer together and make us more resilient, both as individuals and a community? And maybe, hey, maybe we can have some fun while we're at it. I invite you to participate every Friday from 1 to 3. Call in. uh, Let us know how you're doing. Share with your neighbors something that is of interest or passion to you. Or email me anytime with your ideas at you, the letter U, at folk, you, 
www.radiomaria.ca. There's a number of exciting shows happening on the radio right now. I really highly recommend that you check out CortezCurrents.ca as well and listen to their newsy radio spot every Saturday at 1 o'clock. Um, these are highly curated podcast pieces by neighbors that you know talking about issues of our time. This Saturday, Tara is going to do one to start a series on nourishment and what's happening with CETA and the local food hub, as well as I have a piece on what's happening with COVID-19 from the perspective of a Dutch virologist. I look forward to hearing more from you anytime. And I thank you so much for joining us here on CKTZ 89.5 FM Cortez Community Radio. Thank you. Thank you for being my neighbor. Thank you for being here. And thank you for joining in during these times. Stay tuned. We've got another fantastic show, End of the Road Radio Show with the Highway Hippie. Um, and I am signing off, and you 